Hello, stackers, and welcome to a new week. Travel plans during our Thanksgiving week kept us from getting together to record. So instead of an actual play episode, which proved way too tricky to coordinate, I thought it would be fun and useful to revisit some past places and provide some additional story and background. After a quick poll of the players and Twitter followers, I got some good ideas for things to revisit. I'm going to go with Meredith's suggestion to go back to the Valley of the Bones, the ancient burial place with the colony of diseased people that the party ran across back in episode 24, A Flower in the Desert. If you shared an idea, don't worry. We'll try to get around to it eventually in one of these special episodes. After the story is over, I'm going to share a few thoughts I have about the valley and the people, so stick around. In this special episode, we do use some sound effects from BattleBards. If you like what you hear, check them out at BattleBards.com. And now, join me as we get into the story. Barai sat up and rubbed his eyes. The morning sun was already oppressively hot, and his first inclination was to cry out for Manan. But no matter how he shifted, there was no comforting touch of silk on his skin, no soft mattress underneath him, and no cool shadow into which to move to escape the glare. In fact, There was only the grating squeak of sand. He lay still for a moment as the memories of the past night jarred their way through to the surface of his consciousness. There had been a wagon in the dark. A wagon with big, wide wheels made for going over the sand. Wheels that moved ponderously in the back to the thud of the feet of oxen in the front. They were there, too, Bada and Manan. Oh, how Manan had cried the whole way, her tears so different from the laughter they had all known in the big city. And Bada, who used to hold Barai up to the sun and then sweep him down low like a diving bird. But Barai remembered his shoulders were unusually slumped and shaking, and that he refused to look into the back of the wagon. Though Borai called to them, they would not turn, but held each other's hands all the tighter. They had gone some way Borai had never gone before. East, toward the wide-reaching desert, instead of north or south as they often did, following the well-worn trade routes along the sea. Maybe the desert made Bada and Manan sad. The white of the sand stretching on and on out of sight was certainly not as pretty as the dancing water and the bobbing ships with their huge sails. To Barai's little mind, the desert was a place of fear for its trackless wastes and lack of food. His bedtime stories had been full of warnings against wandering too far from the safety of Ankar's walls. And it was also where the bandits were. Was it the fear of bandits that made Manan shake her head and wail softly? Or maybe it had been something the doctors had said. In the previous weeks, those frighteningly serious men with their white robes had used all sorts of long words 
and stared at him with burning eyes as they tilted his head back and forth with their muslin-wrapped hands. What they had said to Bada and Manan had made them serious too. Yes, that must have been it. But why did they need to go at night? That was certainly when the story said the desert was at its worst. But I had peeped over the tall sides of the wagon for glimpses of bandits charging on camels, for the sparkle of moonlight on sharp swords, to no avail. The night was still and quiet, with only wisps of sand swirling noiselessly atop the distant dunes that lay under the moonlight. Bada had muttered something, and Barai had moved to the front of the wagon's bed to grab the board and climb over, but a stick wrapped in old cloth had gently shoved him back, and he tumbled to the floor, more confused than hurt. He had glimpsed ahead the looming black walls of tall sandstone cliffs that were only just visible from the tops of Ankar's walls. They looked much more forbidding up close and in the dark. The wagon's track ran straight for the looming darkness, and it seemed as though they must crash into the stone. But then they were inside the cliffs, clattering through a narrow gap that seemed to press in on both sides of the wagon, so that Barai feared they might become stuck. The oxen ahead plodded on, the great wheels continued to creak their way through the echoing passage. The echoes did nothing to cover the sounds of Manan's sadness, and this made Barai even sadder. He curled up in the bottom of the wagon, by some old sacks that Bada had padded the floor with, and was lulled to sleep by the motion and the sound. And then it was morning. Heat was a constant companion in Setharban, but Barai's short life had been comfortable to this point, so it felt even hotter in the sun. He lay on the pile of sacks, with a little water skin covered in wetness, and another bundle wrapped up and tucked under one of the sack's corners. There was no sign of Bada and Manan, although his thin voice sought them out. Here was a little food, enough for a meal or two, and some water. Had Barai been a bird flying overhead, he would have seen that he was at the southern end of a long, narrow valley running to the north, and that it widened out somewhat as it went. But he was no bird, and he was small and alone, and so he sat and cried, not knowing what to do. After a time, the boy tired of this, and the beating sun was only getting hotter, so he gathered up the food, the skin of water, and one or two of the sacks before heading north to where there seemed to be some promise of gentler land. Five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen, and then the valley's southern end opened to him. He stood for a moment on the road, taking it in. The road continued straight ahead, veering ever so slightly to the right as it went, until the stone walls of the mile-distant end closed back in. To the left, the valley opened out, a broad, flat plain covered with coarse, gray grass 
into a sheer cliff that served as a grim backdrop. At its base was a small camp of cobbled together tents and the low stone rings of fire pits, although no fires were burning at this time of day. A couple grey figures moved about listlessly, aimlessly, drifting from tent to tent without purpose. The low hum of their voices sounded across the still valley. The tones sounded as grey as the people that spoke them. Barai was about to shrink away from the place, about to try to follow the road back the way he had come, when there was the sound of shifting pebbles just behind him, and a wispy voice spoke. Whirling about, Barai saw a woman rising from behind a stone he had passed. Around her head was a wound gray cloth to shield her from the sun, the ends wrapped around her face to help filter out dust. She spoke again, beckoning this time with her hands and changing her words to the familiar cadence of Abaid. Seeing the tenseness of the little boy's shoulders, she knelt and said in an oddly muffled voice, Little boy... Are you lost? Her eyes looked meltingly at him, and she seemed to lean toward him, though she caught herself and clasped her hands over her chest as though to fight the urge. But I did not know how to answer, so he squatted right there and stared at the woman with dark eyes. She peered at him, then, with those searching eyes, and held a hand to her mouth. Oh, she said, Oh, no. So young. And she, too, bowed her head and wept. But I was sorry to see this gentle stranger so moved, and he stood quickly, moved to her and hugged her, resting his head on her shoulder. She paused for a moment, then wrapped her arms about him and gave in to her sadness. The sound of her crying must have carried because in no time, Barai was aware of the approach of the Grey People from the camp. They shuffled across the open space, making a weird rising and falling sound as they came. But when Barai stepped aside, and they saw he was with the woman, they dropped the sound and rushed forward in a babble of voices. Someone with a rapt hand grabbed Barai's face, and he found himself staring at an old man whose frightening face was covered in sores, his ragged hair flying out at odd angles. He is one of us, he said. And then Barai was being poked and prodded by others. When the curiosity abated, and all were assured of something, Barai heard, He is Asanas. She will take him in. The woman, whom he had first seen, stepped forward and put her arm protectively about his shoulders. She steered him away from the throng and toward a shallow cavern in the cliff's face. As they slipped into the shade, the sun's heat immediately slipped away and Barai found himself shivering. So many gaunt, disfigured faces. Surely, his hand crept up and he was horrified to find similar marks on his own face. Asana saw his expression change, and at first looked as though she wanted to hug him again. But instead, she squatted at the back of her cavern, next to a ratty pile of once fine blankets and an iron pot. She let his fingers roam a bit. And then, with a longing look in her eyes, she unwrapped the cloth from her face. 
Barai gasped a bit at this, because her jaw was crooked as though it had come undone on one side. But he was not frightened of her. She spoke carefully and quietly, so that only Barai could hear her. My little one, you have a hard lot ahead of you, but I will help you bear it as well as I can. All I have is yours. She gestured to her few things. He hugged her impulsively, and she accepted it, finally holding him close and feeling his warmth against her. The day wore on. The shadows on the red cliff had disappeared, revealing hundreds or thousands of similar caverns and two large, worn statues of what had once been warriors, sixty feet tall, and still dwarfed by the high rock of the wall. Barai had eaten some of his food. Then sleep had claimed him, and he lay with his head in Asana's lap as she stroked his hair and hummed a song to herself. Barai had just begun to dream of getting out of his bed and heading to the comfort of rolled cushions to eat a bowl of porridge and sugared dates, when the shrieking cry of the gray people stirred him, and he sat upright, his little eyes looking into Asana's for an answer. She was not looking back at him, however. As she felt Barai's head lift away, she carefully stood, then joined a gathering line of people to walk forward and sound an alarm. Barai could now hear the voices weaving words into the noise. Stay away. Do not come near. We are the Marda Ajad. Across the way, on the road where Barai had found himself this morning, a small band of riders was heading east, one trying studiously not to look in their direction, but the other three all staring at the approaching people with looks of cautious amazement. The Marda Ajad came to within about 100 feet of the road, then came to a stop, a hundred or so screaming and yelling people, in various stages of disease, providing a warning not to come closer. The man in the lead stopped suddenly, and the three talked quietly amongst themselves. At this, Barai heard Asana take in a breath, and she stepped forward, tentatively at first, and then with confidence. Her eyes shone, and she said, Fashan! Then many things happened in quick succession. One man, in resplendent armor, swung down from his camel, fell to his knees, spread his arms, his eyes began to roll back in his head. He held two green stones, and a third was tied around his wrist. Then, before Barai knew what was happening, a great flash of light ripped out of the man and a low grinding sound shook the world. All the Marda Ajad were thrown backward. Barai felt as though white-hot metal were flowing over him, covering him, although it didn't hurt as much as he feared it might. He felt as though an eternity had passed, and as though he had been scoured in one of Manan's hot tubs. When he opened his eyes, Barai looked first to Asana. She stood there, the gray cloth of her head covering, fluttering to the ground. She was hugging one of the travelers, who was saying something to the man in the armor. Min Shafa, Barai heard. Light bringer. 
The next minutes were a confusion of laughter and tears, and Barai found himself scooped up, borne along in a direction opposite from where Asana was. The voices of the Marda Ajad, all cleansed and unmarked, were jubilant, and one man threw the boy onto his shoulder. Tonight you will sleep in your bed, he said, voice thick with joy and nearly leaping with excitement as he spoke. We will find your parents, and they will be able to hold their child once more. So that's it for the story. I wanted to share a few things with you before I wrap up this special episode, and before we get back to our actual play episode starting next week. I did this story in a similar way to the one that I did with The Shattering a long time ago. Basically, I set my timer for a one and a half hour word sprint where I just sat down and at the end of 90 minutes, I wrapped up the story and basically what I just read for you was pretty much unedited, uh, just the results of 90 minutes of sitting down and bashing at the keyboard. And so uh, it's just been an interesting experiment to see what comes out uh, when you take off filters, when you sit down and you just kind of let words flow. It's interesting what happens. As I was asking both our players and Twitter followers what they wanted to hear in this week's special episode, I was intrigued when Meredith brought this one up. She, I asked her if she wanted something in particular, and her response came very quickly. I, I want to see more about the valley we went to where all the people were healed. And I was especially happy to hear that because this area of the world is based on... Uh, kind of the world of the Thousand and One Nights. I have the full collection on my shelves upstairs, and it's always been an area of interest for me. So I was very glad to hear Meredith say she wanted to come back to this. And there's bound to be lots more that I could do with this area, with the people, with the places, with the history, that kind of thing. It was just kind of fun to sit down and write a little bit more about the story, maybe think about things from a different point of view and flesh it out a little bit. And really, Setharban was a fun place for me to come up with for the game world uh, because there's such a sense of age and dimension and history to it out of the box. Uh, I've not really done a lot to develop many of these aspects. Um, the presence of statues in the valley, uh, in my mind, informally, uh, they represent the presence of an ancient culture, one that preceded maybe a unified people before Seth Arban was basically split into two language groups. And so uh, the concept of a once unified kingdom having been split has always been interesting to me. The presence of the tombs in the cliff face was also interesting. Just the idea that once upon a time, this was either part of the kingdom or remote enough that it was considered safe to bury dead here so that there would be no risk of contamination. Maybe a quiet place where people could come to reflect and remember their departed ones. And then over the course of years, I think I mentioned this in episode 24, that there had been grave robbers. So some of the caves, like the ones that are easier to reach, are open, empty of any of the burial items that had once been there. And so these sick people, the outcasts, the Marda Ajad, have basically moved in, and these living people have found refuge in the place that was once 
reserved for the dead. Uh, so these living but dead people, I just think there's an interesting aspect to that. In addition, one of the things that I wanted to capture in this story, but also uh, overall in the history of Seth Arban, is a sense of the sadness that comes with some of these chronic diseases, some of the ones that really linger. If you read about the history of leprosy and understand just how terrifying a disease it was when there was no known cure for it, um, the sadness that came with being an outcast, having to walk around and, and tell others, I am unclean, and not to be touched by other humans, there's a sadness in that. And if you read any number of studies, um, there is good to be had from physical contact, from, from the touch of somebody else's hand on you, uh, that is healthy and good. And so once somebody was stricken with a disease like this, uh, to have all of that removed, to have to be torn from your family, to have to be set adrift and to fend for yourself and to be around other people whose outward appearance is frightening, but whose inner light is just so sad and lonely. There's just a lot there to dig into. And uh, I hope this story has done some of that. But really, I just wanted to Try and look at things from a, a narrative standpoint in this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Love to hear your feedback. If you want to share your thoughts with us on Twitter, on Instagram, through Podbean, our, our podcast service, please feel free to do that. We'd love to have your input, your feedback. Also, we'd love to hear something from you in the form of a rating and a review. If you have the time to do that, ratings and reviews are the lifeblood of podcasts. They are the currency of podcasts. If you can just take a few minutes to let us know what you think of the show, we sure would appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We'll be looking forward to sharing an actual play episode with you next week. And as always, we want to thank you for joining us for this week's part of the story. 